Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily and today we have the honor of having Manuel Rodriguez with us. Now, Manny has worked with organizations across the globe. He is an accomplished practitioner in the field of organizational behavior management. He's highly regarded by his customers and colleagues alike. Manny has earned a reputation for his quick grasp of performance challenges and how to solve them, offering a practical real-world approach. Manny's experiences span various industries, such as education, including primary and secondary, Banking, human services, energy, government, transportation, retail, and telecommunications. He has led large-scale change efforts, providing one-on-one coaching and leadership to executives and developing and delivering engaging professional development workshops, seminars, and webinars for thousands of leaders nationally and internationally. Manny also presents regularly at national and international conferences on the subject of human performance applied to leadership, safety, and organizational change. When not supporting clients, Manny is a member of the executive team at ABA Technologies, leading new product development, the continuing education product, and consulting services being delivered across the world. Manny is also the current president and member of the board of directors for the Organizational Behavior Management Network, an organization of over 300 members of professional practitioners and researchers in the field. When not working, Manny spends his time with his wife, Kelly, and two children, Sabrina, who's four, and Aiden, who's two. Welcome, Manuel Rodriguez. How are you? I'm good, Lily. Thank you for having me. Also known as Manny. Manny's fine, yes. So Manny, we're so happy to have you on our podcast. And so, as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am ready, absolutely. Wonderful. Manny, can you tell us a little bit about your path to leadership? Sure, absolutely. I have to start from a job that's probably going to seem a little bit uncommon, and it starts from a company that doesn't even exist anymore, but is still pretty highly recognized, and that's Blockbuster Video. Oh, yes. So <laughs> so I, I was a customer service rep for Blockbuster Video when I was in university, and I loved that job. It was a great job, and I did well as a customer service rep that it got me into a position of assistant manager of the store and then eventually in line to becoming a store manager. And so my first introduction to this whole area uh, field of study of leadership came from the store manager put me through his leadership development program. 
and he was a graduate of some very interesting programs. He had a, like a certificate from Harvard University and he studied at Florida International University, but he was an education major. So he was a school teacher first before he became a store manager at Blockbuster. And so he had a very interesting perspective on leadership from a customer service point of view and just general education. Mm-hmm. So that was my first introduction to leadership, this idea of the customer always comes first and the whole orientation around good leadership drives people to deliver and give stellar customer service. That early introduction carried me through my entire career where my path in leadership and to leadership continued on and professionally in the field of applied behavior analysis where I was working with schools, particularly with principals, vice principals, to look at school-wide behavior improvement strategies for student achievement, as well as students that had severe behavior problems. Can we pause there for a minute? Because I did read about this, and my initial experience with ABA has been working with children that are on the spectrum, have autism. Applied behavior analysis, to me, I equate that with a therapy that's given to children. So this came up when I started to read your bio and what you do. Mm -hmm. This is a different perspective. Can we unpack that a little bit more for our listeners? Because if they're in education, they hear ABA, it's typically for special educators to work with children or clinicians to work with children. So can you unpack that ABA concept a little bit and how it can be applied to leadership in schools? Absolutely. So applied behavior analysis, to put it very briefly and hopefully do it justice, can be simply defined as the science of human behavior. It's the study of human behavior in the environment and looking at the environment in terms of what is it that's driving human behavior? What is it that's influencing human behavior, both good and bad, and what could we do about it to really help people be successful citizens of this world? So that's a very broad definition on purpose because the application of applied behavior analysis is equally broad. Mm -hmm. So the biggest application or the most well-known, as you described, Lily, is the field of uh, serving children and adults with developmental disabilities, such as autism. However, I will tell you right off the bat, I've actually never worked with a child or an adult with autism. My study and my application of applied behavior analysis has been specifically working with organizations such as schools. I look at the field of education as an organization. So I work with the leadership of schools and even at the district and federal level to really look at the organization aspect of education. So whether it's the procedures that the school administrators use or it's the curriculum that the teachers use to really maximize student achievement, those are the variables, those are the exact things that I use and I look at when applying applied behavior analysis. There are practitioners and researchers work with geriatrics, with organizations like Fortune 500 companies, and that's a big part of my background as well. There are applied behavior analysts out there, specialists that are working specifically with animals at Walt Disney World's Animal Kingdom. So applied behavior analysis is very broad, and what happens, just like other disciplines like engineering or even education, professionals learn the science, and then they learn a special They learn the application, the specialization 
of the application in a very specific setting, like mm-hmm. autism, like education or organizations. So it's kind of like being an MD and then having a specialty. Exactly. And in the world of business, I look at engineers very similar. Mm-hmm. Engineers could be mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, chemical engineers. Right. and But they all start with kind of some basic fundamentals of engineering. And so in behavior analysis, the BCBAs, that's Board Certified Behavior Analyst. That's an internationally well-known certification. It, there's about 30 to 40,000 people who are board certified behavior analysts. The certification is so special because those certifications really lend itself to some very good credibility around standards of applying behavior analysis. So if as a school, as a principal, I needed some help with my leadership in the school, help with the culture, how would that work? So when I've worked with principals in the past, typically they're really looking to maximize the performance of not just their teachers, but their administration team as well. Ultimately, for the common goal of student achievement, school-wide success, and I live in the state of Florida, and most states, the state agencies of the Department of Education, they also grade the schools. So a lot of principals are held accountable to the very performance grading the state does. So the first thing we do is assess where are they today? What is their status? What is their position in terms of performance? Mm -hmm. And we do it by looking at two different types of data. The first one is like the hard data, right? So the state grading, what's the school's grade right now? What was it years ago? We look at student achievement, pass rate, test scores, all that. And then I also am particularly fond of looking at teacher retention. So looking at teachers' longevity in the school, do they have a high percentage of turnover or do they have a high percentage of retention? The second category I like to look at in this assessment phase is the soft data. So this is where you interview the administrators, the teachers, and I would even go at the district level or regional level to really get a sense of the perception of what's going on in the school. This is where you look at the interaction between teachers and parents or teachers and students. I even go one step further and look at the behavior interactions between the principal, the administrative staff, and the teachers. So looking at those two data sets, that really paints a picture of the culture, how things are really happening in that school. Once we unlock and uncover those behaviors and what's going on in the culture, then we can really then define what does good look like? What does the principal, vice principal, and even the teachers themselves, what would achievement look like? What does success look like in that school? Mm -hmm. And more often than not, Lily, I find that both those two data sets that I mentioned are both equally important. They want student achievement. They want to be the A school, right? Mm-hmm. They, they want high teacher retention, but they also want people to be treated fairly. They want people to be treated with good integrity. They want leaders to be transparent and they want really good communication. So that hard stuff and the soft stuff seem to be equally important. And that's what I start looking at and start to improve upon when we talk about improving the culture. So then you do professional development and you do coaching depending on the needs, right? That's right. So depending on the needs of the school, there's a variety of different performance improvement solutions that we can implement. It could be training development. It could be one-on-one leadership coaching. Many times it's performance feedback on both sides, the administrative side and the teacher side, on how they are performing day in and day out to achieve those goals for the school. 
if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way? So I work for a company called ABA Technologies, and we have a website, abatechnologies.com, and I am the vice president of the company. For your listeners, I'm happy to share my email address, and they can feel free to email me at any time, Manny, M-A-N-N-Y, at abatechnologies.com. Well, Manny, thank you so much for that. So as a vice president of this company, how would you describe your leadership style? I am so happy to say I have a great team that works with me and I get to work with every day. And so if I had to describe my leadership style, I guess I describe it in three words. One is collaboration. I am a big fan of encouraging and leading teams to make sure that there is a very collaborative environment. The second word that keeps coming to me is about innovation. I'm a big proponent of leading my team to really innovate, not just new ways of doing things, but also better ways to do the things we already do well. I'm a big fan of that. I like to believe my style of leading is really leading others to innovate, both doing things the best we can, even if we're doing really well at it, and then looking at innovating new ways to do things. Okay, so let's stop there for a minute because you're speaking a language that I absolutely love. And when you talk about innovation, to me, that's creativity. To me, that's an environment (laughs) where stress is not so suffocating. How do you cultivate innovation? I agree with you 100%. I think innovation, creativity, they don't even have to be big things, right? You don't have to invent the next iPhone, right? You don't have to invent the next big school curriculum. A lot of times, innovating even the small improvements can make a huge impact on people's work quality, stress, productivity, etc. So there's a couple of ways that I tend to encourage innovation. The first is I do proactively ask my team, my employees on giving me new ideas, things that they think we could do better or things that we're doing really well but even can do one step further. So I ask on a very frequent basis for team members that I have that are more virtual team members. I have an employee that works in California and one in Hawaii. We tend to meet on a monthly or even quarterly basis. And one of the agenda topics when we meet is what could we be doing better or what new ideas do we have that we're not even doing today? To encourage innovation starts with the conversation of innovation. So actually making it a very open and visible discussion topic. The second thing that I do is when we do come up with innovative ideas, we don't just put it on a sheet of paper. You know, we don't just talk about it. So then we put it into an action plan. We actually go to the next step and say, okay, if it's a well worth idea, if it's something that we really feel passionate about, let's start the path of actually getting it done. So let's implement it. Let's test it out. Let's see what we could do to make it happen. One of our main products at ABA Technologies in the realm of education is we develop and deliver online continuing education courses and applied behavior analysis. So these continuing education courses are online, on demand for anybody around the world. And sure enough, we have students take our courses from all over the planet. One of the things that me and my colleagues do on a regular basis, we review the quality of our products and we get feedback from students on their experience of those courses. When we get that information, we rack our brains to say, what can we do better? How can we make these courses even more world-class than they already are? Could we provide better instruction? Could we do the on-demand courses even differently? like on smartphones or camera crews out in the real world instead of in our studio. So 
every time we meet and we look at that information, that student feedback, the next step is what can we do better? And all of those ideas get put in an action plan for the year and we actually implement those. I imagine that teachers asking those questions of their students would move the whole culture towards innovation. I teach at a university and I always ask, does that work? What can work better? This is higher ed, but it can work in elementary schools. It can work in in high schools, in middle schools. It would certainly cultivate innovation where the whole school can grow, where the whole culture can change. I totally agree with you, Lily. One of my most recent experiences has been with Dr. Paul Gavani. And Paul and I have had a great deal of work together in the last few years. And one of the things that Paul and I have done in his schools in particular, because he's a assistant vice principal and now works at a district here in Florida, is we essentially bring the teachers and even parents together, as well as the administrative teams of the school. And we ask the same questions. What could we do better to improve the quality of education here at the school and even the productivity of teachers, students, and the administrative staff? Mm -hmm. Just asking those questions, it's amazing. It unlocks so many ideas. And for the most part, the ideas could be implemented in a very short amount of time. And that, to me, is the best innovation Paul and I have actually coined a term in his school called quick wins. The best innovative ideas have the biggest impact, the biggest visibility, and also the lowest amount of effort to implement. And you know, just asking those questions, I know if someone were to ask me those questions, I would feel valued. And bringing value to other people just does something, it shifts something in people where they become more open and more giving and more creative because you've set the stage by asking those questions. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen often, especially in education, because there's so much stress based Mm -hmm. on performance. Everything's about performance. And that's great. I mean, it has its place. But innovation can open up so many other doors. I agree with you. I think what we're talking about here is the very definition of good leadership. Mm -hmm. Good leadership, especially in the world of education, whether you're a principal, the head of a district, good leadership has to be the combination of achieving results with the right behaviors. Mm -hmm. So whether that's encouraging innovation, whether that's coaching or giving feedback to a struggling teacher, whether that's dealing with a parent that's just irate at what's going on in the school, Mm -hmm. or if you're in the worst circumstances, like a turnaround school where you have low morale, you have teachers quitting, or you have really high turnover rates for a variety of reasons, even at the student level. Paul and I were working at a school recently where the student retention was low, meaning students Mm -hmm. were leaving by the dozens because families were commuters and they didn't really want to stay in those schools anyway. Mm -hmm. So when you have those situations, it really calls to question the leadership and Mm -hmm. looking at leadership in terms of the combination of not just focusing on the results of the school's performance, but doing it the right way through very focused and committed leadership behaviors like encouraging innovation. And where you have a healthy environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you mentioned collaboration, you mentioned innovation, and there's one more with your leadership style. You've got a good memory, Lily. (laughs) I'm writing this down. The third one is what I call reinforcement. Okay. So I am a big proponent of making sure that my team gets enough reinforcement. And what I mean by that is very proactive as well as reactive feedback 
both positive and constructive. Mm -hmm. And I will be the first to say I'm a pretty overly positive guy. So most of my team tells me they want more constructive out of me. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we learn in applied behavior analysis, specifically in the context of organizations, so working with adults, you know, people that are trying to do a job. At the end of the day, most people would say if they could get one thing on a constant basis, it's reinforcement. It's some form or fashion of feedback about how they're doing in their job. So my leadership style, my third word is reinforcement. I like to make sure that my team knows that they're doing a good job, knows when they need to do something better, and I want to provide it in enough frequency so that they're not guessing. They're not wondering, yeah, how am I doing? There's clarity, which is really important. That's right, clarity. And the consistency of reinforcement, I think, is one of the missing elements in the world of education. Mm -hmm. I can tell you just recently, I went to a school with Paul, and we interviewed teachers, and we asked them, when was the last time you got good quality feedback from your leadership? And the vast majority of the teachers said, I can't remember the last time my leader came up to me and told me how well I was doing in terms of my job. Yeah. So just our intervention, Lily, was give them more feedback. Go and observe them in real time. Go to the classroom, see what they're doing, and give them feedback, not just positive. Give them the constructive, too. That's what they want, and that's what they deserve. Mm -hmm. And so by doing that, after we implemented those solutions, it was night and day. Teachers were wanting more feedback. They were encouraged to do different things. They tried to implement different things. And even the administrators themselves, the leadership team said, man, I wish I was doing this for years. Mm. It takes mindfulness for a leader. There's so much coming at you. You have to be really intentional to put I this into practice all the time. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned mindfulness. It's quite interesting that you mentioned that word because my first run in with mindfulness, I got this great opportunity years ago to work in India and I got to uh, meet an instructor of mindfulness training. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'll never forget, and I'll use this as something I'll live by as a leader, is mindfulness is truly about being in that moment. Mm -hmm. So I have used that in my leadership coaching. So when I'm coaching a leader in a school and I say, look, the teachers want more feedback. So when you're going to go and observe that teacher and you're going to give that feedback, nothing else matters. You have to be in that moment mm -hmm. because that teacher deserves your 100 percent attention. Mm -hmm. That teacher, even if it's 15 minutes of it. Mm -hmm. So all of the noise, the budget problems, the parent complaints, the district phone calls, you know, all those other things. In that moment of time, nothing else should matter. So I totally like that you brought up the mindfulness. That to me is super important for that leader of that school or that mm -hmm. district. They need to be in that moment to make a huge impact. Yeah, and once the leaders do that with the teachers, then the teachers do that with the students. And it's a beautiful thing. Okay, so tell us which quote about leadership speaks to you and why. That's a great one. So I will quote a gentleman by the name of Dr. Aubrey Daniels. He is a pioneer in the field of applied behavior analysis, specifically in organizational settings. And the quote is what he calls the true measure of a leader. The true measure of a leader is looking at the behavior of those that follow that leader. Hmm. Like the legacy that you leave. That's right. So the behaviors of those people that you are leading, if they are doing the right things, if mm -hmm. they are achieving the right things and they're doing it the right way, 
that by definition should be the true measure of a leader. That's a great quote. Love it. So tell me what type of leader are you inspired by and why? I am a big fan of leaders who provide enough reinforcement in respect to innovation, but also something I haven't mentioned, which is autonomy. I have been inspired by leaders who have given me great deal of autonomy in doing the work that I do, but without leaving me to the sharks, right? Without mm-hmm. leaving me to sink or swim, you know, they, that's where the reinforcement kicks in. Mm-hmm. So giving me that feedback and positive and constructive, but autonomy has inspired me to a great deal. Another one that I like comes from a book from good to great. They talk about big, hairy, audacious goals. And I've had leaders that have inspired me by giving me very big, hairy, audacious goals, meaning sometimes the goals seem far out of reach. They are so big, they are so mind-numbing, if you will, Mm -hmm. that it almost puts you in a state of panic, almost instant (laughs) How are we going to achieve that big, hairy, audacious goal? But It can be scary. It is absolutely mind-numbing. I remember the first time The leader that I'm thinking about, right after the new year, every year for like five years, he would set some big, hairy, audacious goal for the year. And it just inspired me. And I didn't always hit those big, hairy, audacious goals. (laughs) The point was get as close as you can because even close is really something. And I drive that in my teams. I'm getting pretty well known now in my company for setting pretty big, hairy, audacious goals. And it scares people to death, but it is what inspires me. And I just only hope that they would tell you and tell others it inspires them. So it sounds like you also are inspired when people trust you because to give someone autonomy is because they trust what you're doing to give someone such a big goal and not berate you for not meeting that is someone who trusts you and pushes you and sees something in you that you don't see yet. Yeah, I think that's a great point. For me, I think of my leadership style and the leaders that inspire me are very ethical leaders. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is if your listeners read like Harvard Business Review and, and other journals like that, they talk about ethical leaders and, and what does that mean? And one of the things that always seems to come up in literature is about transparency and trust. And I totally agree with that. I get inspired when a leader trusts me. And I also want my team to trust me. And I think a lot of that is the right thing to do to make sure that you are encouraging your staff to trust you. And you're also being seen as somebody who's trustworthy. I think that's a great point, Lily. Mm -hmm. So tell us what's the best advice you've ever received. The best advice that I have ever received, and I tend to apply it in everything I do, is that we need to just try. We need to try whatever it is we're wanting to do, whether it's solve a problem or try a new innovative idea. We just have to try it. So not worrying about it being totally perfect, not worrying about it being buttoned up, all T's are crossed, Mm -hmm. I's are dotted. Just give it a shot. That's kind of the best advice I ever got. The worst thing that can happen is that you fail and you learn from that. Mm-hmm. That's right. But if, if you don't try, you don't even know. That's great advice. So what does it mean to you, Manny, to have a good team and how do you build one? Having a good team is the very difference between success and failure. So having a good team means you have people that want to do the right things, that thrive on 
working hard, working smart, which doesn't necessarily mean working long hours, right? Just working to the point where they're looking to achieve something of significance. Mm. So a good team represents a group of individuals that may or may not come from a variety of different walks of life, but they all come together with a common goal and mission, and that's to really achieve something of significance. Now, for me, how do you develop that? I go back to the question before, you know, what's the best advice I ever got? Mm -hmm. And that's just give it a try. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about your listeners, but I'm sure there are people out there and you're probably one of them who have been in the situation where you had to lead a team, but you didn't actually get to pick your team. Right. The the team was basically given to you. Right. You inherited a team. And so going back to that best advice is you have to give it a try. So you have to reinforce being innovative, making sure that they're implementing things, making sure that you're giving them feedback and they're giving you feedback in return. I'm a big fan of developing a team in terms of setting goals, both reasonable goals and those big, hairy, audacious goals. I develop teams so that they are collaborating with each other as best as possible. I'm a big fan of not just giving feedback to a team, but also asking for feedback from my team. I feel personally that that's a big gap in general around leaders. Leaders don't typically ask for enough feedback in return. And for me, in order to develop a good team, you have to get feedback on an ongoing basis so you as a leader know what you're doing and what you could be doing better so that you are maximizing the team's performance. And to do that, you have to have a good relationship with your team, right? Oh, absolutely. This goes back to your trust point. If your team doesn't trust you and you fundamentally just don't get along, you're going to lose people, potentially very talented people. You're going to lose credibility as a leader if you don't have a good relationship. And then fundamentally, as a leader, you're accountable for results. And if you don't have strong, good working relationships then you're not going to achieve those results. And again, that goes back to how I started. A good team is the very difference between success and failure. Now, Manny, I know that you coach, but do you have a coach? Yes, I coach. And yes, I have coaches. I have lots of coaches. (laughs) Why is that important? Going back to my old blockbuster days, Lily, Uh I have to say one of the ways that I got developed as a leader early on was I was actually paired with a coach. And from a business side of things, that was my first exposure to this whole idea of coaching. Fast forward so many years later, I'm now a coach to leaders and I coach people about looking at human behavior in the workplace, whether it's a school or a manufacturing setting, and just fundamentally helping them be better and achieve more and looking at what their impact is on others. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think the value of coaching is getting that fresh pair of eyes, that fresh perspective on what you're doing, what your intention is versus your impact. And to me, that's huge. So I value, I appreciate what coaching does and what I can do as a coach, I find to be one of the most rewarding aspects of my job. What I also value is I like to receive coaching as well. And for me, I, like I said, I have several coaches. So I actually look at my employees 
as coaches. Mm. They're coaching me all the time. They're telling me, what can I do better? What am I doing well? So if I seek out the feedback, that feedback is coaching me. I also have a very good colleague of mine. We are essentially peers in our company and she coaches me all the time. You know, I ask her for a variety of feedback all the time. Mm-hmm. And then I also look externally from my workplace and I have a couple of colleagues that I consider to be coaches for me. Mm-hmm. One is Paul Gavani. Paul has been very instrumental to me in the last couple of years coaching me on the current generation in the world of education. I belong to a network called the Organizational Behavior Management Network. It's a group of professionals. We represent like 350 people around the world. The OBM Network, Organizational Behavior Management Network, essentially is a cohort of colleagues. And amongst those 350 people, there's one gentleman that I have been so fortunate to work with over the years. His name is Dr. Tim Ludwig. He actually does his work in applied behavior analysis in the world of safety. So he improves industrial process safety and also occupational safety. So he applies behavior analysis to safety. Let me just back up a little bit. When you talk about safety, of course, I'm thinking of the schools and all this craziness that happens in schools where you have kids in danger because crazies come in with guns. Does he work in that environment as well? He does not, but there are professionals that are working with children and using applied behavior analysis techniques to train them on what to do in the case of an active shooter, for example, in a school. Um, How? How to educate children better so that they know what to do in the presence of a gun. So one guy in particular, his name is Dr. Raymond Miltenberger. He's out in the University of South Florida, I think. But Dr. Raymond Miltenberger has recently been on the news showing how he's training children on how to approach a gun and what to do in the event that they see a gun, you know, whether they're at home or in school. Oh, Manny, we need to have him on our podcast. Oh, well, I I will send you his contact information. (laughs) So there are applied behavior analysts that are really looking at the safety in schools. And they're really looking at fundamentally, what does the school leadership team do to protect children, teachers, and even the community in the event of an active shooter? That's important. So Manny, tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life. So it's not in the world of education, but it definitely applies to the world of safety. Mm-hmm. And I was doing work in northern Alberta, Canada. It was for an industry called the oil sands. Think of a huge piece of land that they dig up because underneath the surface, there are millions and millions of pounds of dirt saturated with natural oil. And that's why they call it oil sands. Mm. So I had the great opportunity to work in this industry for two and a half years. I lived in northern Alberta, Canada. It's very close to like the frozen tundra. It's really in the worst of times. It gets down to like minus 50 degrees. Oh, fun. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) that time in my life was very influential because I was able to apply, apply behavior analysis in two different respects. One was for the oil sands, working on their safety and productivity and all that. But then the company that we were working for, they also did a lot of community outreach. So I actually applied applied behavior analysis to the local schools. So while I was doing that, I had the unfortunate experience of witnessing a fatality. Mm -hmm. And it was a young woman in her mid-20s 
She was working in the production unit and we were doing our safety performance. I was in the middle of training and all of a sudden the sirens went off and this individual um, passed on. So she was the victim of a huge accident and she didn't make it. That became a huge turning point in my career where I wanted to take a step back because at that time I was working with big Fortune 500 companies on things like improving sales, improving revenue, and you know the big results that we were talking about. But then I realized there was a huge gap in my professional career that I was missing, which was all about human well-being and human safety. So I took a huge detour in my career and I spent the next five years solely focused on applying behavioral science to improve the health and well-being and safety of people in the workplace. And I got a great opportunity to work for an international chemical company and I got to trot across the globe to improve human safety. And that was my whole focus for five years. In the last couple of years, that turning point continues because one of the things that I love doing and working with Paul, we've talked about doing this more and more, is now going back to the schools and looking at how do we improve and make sure that the school is as safe as possible for the students. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. That was one of the major situation in my life and how it impacted me. Well, I had a guest on the show who said that you become a great leader when your mess becomes your message. Ah, that's good. (laughs) And your story reminds me of that because what happened really propelled you and encouraged you and motivated you to do something about it. And I think we see that all the time, right? I mean, I'm just sharing one story, but I know that we see leaders in schools and I'm a big fan of Paul Gavani. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that he shares with me all the time is his different stories about the turnaround schools he's worked in. And you know, facing those kids that are needy, you know, facing those parents that come to school that probably haven't showered in days because they don't have a shower, Mm. you know, looking at homeless people every day, looking at people who are starving in the streets. I mean, there are events that we probably don't even appreciate happen to us every day. But yeah, that big one, those big events that we can't ignore. Like I think about all the school shootings that we've seen over the last few years. I guess I'm one of the lucky ones that I haven't seen that, uh, you know, and I have young kids. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine the impact. And so for me, I think we see time and time again, fantastic leaders kind of step up from these major events and they really look to make a significant difference in this world. And it all does stem many times from those kind of significant, horrible, life-changing mm-hmm. events. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Now, what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate, their culture? What advice would you give them? That's a good question, too. Lily, you're filled with good <laughs> questions. So if I was working with a new leader and was very discouraged about their culture, one of the first pieces of advice I would give them is to make sure that they have a very clear idea of what does success look like? What does a good culture mean to them? What is it that they're trying to see be better? Mm -hmm. So is it that it's such a bad culture because people are treated unfairly? Is it because people are yelled at in the workplace? Is it because there's unethical things going on? Or is it simply because people don't get enough feedback and reinforcement? I mean, what is it? What? So defining the problem is step one to achieving success in what you want to do. 
Mm. What does good culture look like? Because mm-hmm. I can tell you, going from one school to another school, good culture looks totally different. So if that new leader is struggling, they have to know, first off, what does good look like to them? Mm-hmm. That way they can set themselves on a path to achieving that success. So they need to know what their expectations are, clear expectations. Yeah, clear expectations, clear goals. What would be different? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I was telling one leader in a school not too long ago. He was complaining about some teacher and the way that they instruct the class. And he made this reference, we should probably just turn off the lights in the classroom, like just Mm -hmm. shut it down. He was so distraught about it. I said, well, what if the lights were off today? What would it look like if you turned on the lights tomorrow and it actually was a better place? What would that look like? Mm. And so he was able to take that analogy and he drew a picture, a very vivid picture in his mind on what that teacher would be doing different, what the students would be doing different, what the curriculum would look like, what the structure of the classroom would look like. He painted it so vividly, Lily, Mm -hmm. that the next thing he did was he said, Well, I can turn on the lights. Mm. Now I know what I want. Mm. So, and he set himself in a path to get there. Manny, that's powerful because you get people to really reflect on their own thinking. Because sometimes we just complain, but when you get them to really reflect on their thinking and to reframe how they think, that's a powerful tool that you give people. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. So Manny, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? Well, I'm a big fan of lifelong learning, that's for sure. And I can answer your question in terms of just kind of painting a picture of how I approach lifelong learning. I hope for everybody that listens to your program, I think they would all agree lifelong learning is so important. And by virtue of listening to your podcast, they're probably lifelong learners. (laughs) So I had the fortune and honor to get my bachelor's and a master's degree. And then I wanted to take him further. So I became a board certified behavior analyst early on in my career. Probably about two years later, I got a variety of different certificates from both consulting companies, but also higher education. So certificates and things like coaching. I got a certificate years ago in leadership from University of Pittsburgh. I also found it very valuable to do online courses. This was prior to the job I have today. And then finally, I think one of the things I've always found to be very helpful is to make sure that I stay current in not just my own field of study, but the broader field. So what I studied was applied behavior analysis. So every year I go to one or two professional conferences where I get to go to different presentations and all that and workshops. So as a lifelong learner, I also try to contribute and do presentations myself. And I learned from that situation as well. But also outside of behavior analysis, I am a big fan of learning from the broader fields that I am serving as a leader. So whether it's education or safety or manufacturing. So I tend to go to conferences and read journals and books and all that in those fields. And so recently I attended a conference as well as presented out in California called the California Association for Latino Superintendents and Administrators, CALSA, Mm -hmm. C-A-S-A. And it was so fantastic, Lily, because I got to present, but then I also got to sit in on a handful of different workshops, and I learned so much from them. So to me, lifelong learning, especially for leaders, I think is not just important, 
but it's absolutely fundamental to being a successful leader for the tenure of your leadership career. That's absolutely right. It's so funny because when I think of lifelong learning and I think of my life and I think of many people who I've interviewed, we have this addiction to learning, this addiction to creating. And it's about growing and continuing to grow. You don't arrive. And so that concept that you don't arrive is a really healthy place to be. Yes, I agree 100%. So tell us, what have you read that our listeners should read? Oh, I have a bookshelf, Lily. I should probably (laughs) just take a picture for you. So I have a couple of books I would recommend very highly to your listeners. Mm -hmm. I'll start with one by a gentleman that I had mentioned earlier named Dr. Aubrey Daniels, and it's called Measure of a Leader. The quote that I quoted earlier comes from that book, and it's just a great book. There's another one called The Work Revolution by Dr. Julie Clow, C-L-O-W, and the book is about training and development in the workplace, so really unlocking human behavior and human performance with respect to advanced talent development and training development. And she has a very unique career path where she worked, I think, at Google, and now she works at Chanel. Mm -hmm. So she's not in the education circles, but she does a great job just really articulating what does the workplace look like if you were to unlock talent development in a different way. You know, being in education, I think it's so important to read books on leadership in other disciplines because it helps us to open up a different perspective and to look at what's effective there and we can also use it in education. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of applied behavior analysis, there's a recent book called The Nurture Effect and the subtitles is How the Science of Human Behavior Can Improve Our Lives and Our World. And it's by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Anthony Biglin. It's kind of labeled as a self-help book But it's honestly not a self-help book. It's really looking at the world and the influence that we have as a world towards improving the lives of people around the world. So I would highly recommend that. And I think there's huge applications of what he talks about in here to the world of education. Great. Thank you so much for that. Now, Manny, I know that you are a vice president of a company. You're a husband. You have two kids. (laughs) What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities that are on you? I would say I definitely drink lots of coffee. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I have a colleague that works very closely with me, and I think every hour to 90 minutes, we're we're making sure the other one has a good cup of coffee because she works so closely with me that we basically work on everything together. Okay. So coffee's definitely one. I'm sure that's not for the health aficionados. That's probably not the right answer, but uh, I'm a Cuban male, so coffee's a must. Okay. Uh, but to be very honest, one of the things that I work on, I won't say that I'm very perfect at it, is I tend to sit in my car every day for about two to five minutes and I try to think about what I'm about to do for the next so many minutes. Mm-hmm. So if I, for example, get to work and I, I'm in my car in the parking lot of my office, I don't always just get out of my car. I sit in my car, I turn off the music, I let the air conditioning kind of hit my face, and I just think about what am I getting ready to do that day. And I don't try to spend a whole great deal of time, I don't even look at my calendar to see what's on the calendar. I just simply ask that question, like what is the big thing I'm trying to do today? And I tend to do that both when I'm going 
to work, but I also do it when I go home. Before I get out of the car, I just sit for a minute and say, okay, am I ready for what I'm about to do at home? Whether it's play with my kids or cook dinner or take out the trash, you know, do the home stuff, right? And what that does for me is that sets my mind up for what I'm about to get accomplished. And I even do that at home. So like, if I get home at six o'clock at night and I know my kids are not going to be in bed for another couple of hours, I got to be on daddy duty for a couple of hours. So I got to be ready to play because the first thing they do is they scream and yell and they jump all over me and they're like, mm-hmm. let's go play, you know? Right. And I love that. But if I'm not mentally prepared for that, then they don't have me in the moment, right? They don't have mm-hmm. me present. So I tend to do that both for work and home. The other thing I do, Lily, I learned this from an old coach of mine is to look at what is it that I'm trying to accomplish, not for the year, not for the month, but even just that day or that week. Now, I'm not perfect at that, but I would say that really helps me. I am more prepared. I'm more efficient. I'm more productive. If I set those tangible goals of what I'm going to do on that day or that week, that really helps me. It sets me in a mode of being the most productive versus busy. And I think that's something I learned from my mentor and my coach. I'll end with this. The way that he used to help me get set up for work is he used to ask me a question. He used to say, are you busy or are you productive? His point was, if you're busy, you're not helping yourself. The goal is to figure out how to be productive. So setting goals, getting your mind at ease, like meditating if that works for you, or just simply take two minutes in your car and just understand what is it that you're walking in on. So I hope that answered your question for me. It does, because it helps you to be intentional, even in the little things, to be present for the next thing. And that's a practice. And here's a question that is a stumbling block to a lot of the leaders and even the guests that have been on my show. We haven't gotten a solid answer Although we always work at it, but how do you maintain that balance in your life? Because you have little ones, you have a family and you have a thriving business. I would say I don't always. So I think that is, you know, you mentioned lifelong learning. I am a big lifelong learner in terms of time management and just trying to figure that out. So I have tried and been successful in a couple of things that have worked for me. The one of the things that I try to do to just unplug and really keep that balance is when I go on vacation, I actually just turn off my phone. (laughs) I don't bring the phone with me. I actually have a separate camera, so I don't have my phone camera, you know, that kind of thing. I tend to do things that are kind of physically going to keep me from going off the balance. At work, I find the alternative is also happening. So my wife would contact me while I was at work. So one of the agreements that we had was she only calls me if it's really important. So that's really helped me strike the balance so that when I am at work, I am working. I had to set this kind of rule with my executive team. Don't call me or text me at home unless it's really important. Otherwise, it can wait till tomorrow. For me, striking the balance is about setting expectations with those around you to make sure that everybody understands what is it you need to be successful in striking that balance. Mm -hmm. So Manny, we've come to our last question. If you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I don't remember that one. Surprise! that's That's a great question. I would tell myself that I believe I have a strength that I genuinely 
respect people. I like people. It's not that I want people necessarily to like me. I just like people. So I like working with people. I genuinely care about people. And so my advice to my younger self is to never lose sight of the value that people bring to your life. Beautiful. People bring value in your life. And if you treat them with respect, with dignity, with just a genuine level of care, you will get the maximum value that they have to offer you. That's great advice, Manny. Thanks, Lily. I just want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Oh, it's been my pleasure. This has been fun, Lily. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to masterleadership.org to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of the exceptional leaders that are featured on this podcast. Until next time, bye.